I invite you to bow your hearts with me and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come to you as your children, knowing that there is always place before your throne for us. Because Jesus has purchased our access to you. And he has brought us in, into your holy place. People who were restricted from coming to you in the Old Testament now have access to you straight through a throne of grace because of Christ's work on the cross. This morning as we come to your word, we come to an amazing passage of scripture that gives us the glory of Christ, that describes for us who Christ is, that tells us what he has done for us. I pray that we would behold Christ this morning. I pray that you would by your spirit open our hearts and that you would allow us to see who Christ is. And although there are no commands in this text, although there are no things that we're told to do, I pray that we would just behold Christ. In this time when people are beholding their television sets or their iPhones and looking at all the news that are happening around, I pray that we would fix our eyes on you this morning and we would see you as a sovereign king. We would see Jesus Christ as the one who reigns supreme over all things. And that that vision of Christ would give us comfort, would give us peace, that you would allow us to rest in you, remind us of these truths, and give us the peace that only you can give. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Colossians chapter 1. And this morning we will be in verses 15 through 20. I've titled this message this morning, The Supremacy of Christ over all things. We live in unprecedented times, and even this morning, as in the last couple of weeks, we've gathered under unusual circumstances. In the history of this country, there has never been a time where on Sunday morning, most of the churches through the country were empty. Yes, there are denominations that have a declining Sunday attendance because our society is getting more secular and secular year by year. But there never has been a time when most of the churches are closed on Sunday. Nothing and no one was able to accomplish this until the last couple of weeks. Now the effect of this is seen not only on our churches, but we feel this at our jobs, at our businesses, schools, gyms, and we can go on and on. Virtually every aspect of life has in one way or another been affected. Why? Because an invisible virus is wreaking havoc on the planet. You turn on your television set, you watch your iPhone, you open news, and the headline is this, coronavirus reigns supreme over all things. Well, I got news for you this morning. Not from headquarters in New York, but from headquarters of heaven. Jesus Christ reigns supreme over all things. That is the point of the passage that we have before us. No pandemic, no Satan, no virus, no evil, nothing reigns supreme but Jesus and Jesus alone. Over the last few weeks, we've been studying the book of Colossians, and this morning, we come to a mountain peak. We come to the climax of this passage, and perhaps even the book, because in our text before us, Paul gives us this most profound, comprehensive, and glorious picture of Christ. As he writes to this church, 
in Colossae, he attacks head-on the heresy that was threatening the church and that I believe is threatening us today as well. We studied the first 14 verses in the last couple of weeks, and in the first 14 verses, Paul has introduced us to himself. He has introduced us to the saints in the church in Colossae. Last few weeks, we've been studying this introduction section, and we talked about Paul giving thanksgiving for the church that was in that city. He praises God for their faithfulness. He praises God for the faith and for the love which they're exhibiting during those times. And then he takes us into his prayer closet. Last couple of weeks, Jan was taking us through this prayer we have in verses 9 through 14. And he tells us specifically what he prays for. And Paul was praying that during this time, their knowledge of God would increase. Their knowledge of the person of God would increase. And as a result of that knowledge of God, that their life would be transformed. That they would continue to live out the will of God. And by that, that they may please God. Because it was the Father. It was the Father, as he says here, who rescued them. It was the Father who qualified them. It was the Father who brought them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. The Father deserves to be praised. The Father deserves to be thanked because of what he has done. And everything that they are and everything that they have, they owe to the Father. Now in verse 13, he transitions from the Father to the Son. In verse 13, he says, It was the Father who transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. See, as believers, we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Christ reigns supreme as a king. Now with this transition, Paul goes on to this passage in verses 15 through 20, which some believe to be an hymn that Paul includes in his letter, although that's debated. Now no other passage in Scripture, I think we can say that, exalts Christ and describes for us the supremacy of Christ as does this text. Now before we actually go to the text, I want to just ask all of us to think about one question. Why is this text here? Why does he include it right here? Now this is a famous passage and no doubt you've heard sermons about it. Most likely many of you have memorized this text. Now as you read the text, there are no commands there are no instructions. There are no things that, okay, take this text and this is what I want you to do with this text. But it's still included here for a reason. Now, Paul doesn't t t tell us explicitly what he wants us to do with this text. But he gives us this portrait of Christ because he wants you and I to be amazed with Christ. He wants you and I to see who Christ is and what Christ has done for every single one of us. He describes this passage for believers in Colossae because Christ was under attack in that church. Because people have marred the image of Christ. People who came into that church, perhaps false teachers, they were preaching heresies about Christ. And Paul is going to exalt Christ to the highest position so that believers, those who truly know Christ, they may respond to him and worship him as he truly deserves. If you remember the introduction, when we did the introduction to this book, we said that the false teachers came in and they said, well, Jesus was just a created being. Jesus was created an angel who was created by the Father. Then Jesus created another angel and that other angel created another angel. And then somewhere down the line, that last angel created physical matter, created the earth. Now, because matter is evil, good God cannot create matter. And so Jesus could not have created it. So it was someone else. Now, Jesus, they said, was not a man. Jesus did not have physical flesh. 
And with this passage here, Paul debunks all that in the matter of few verses. Now therefore, as we study this passage of Scripture, we want us to see glorious Christ. We want to see Christ as He truly is, as Paul presents Him in this verse. My desire for you and for me as I read this text and as you read this text, that you would be amazed with Jesus. Truly amazed with Jesus. And not only amazed with Jesus, but that you would treasure Jesus supremely because you understand who He is. Here's the point of this text. If I put it in one sentence, it would go like this. Jesus deserves to be supremely treasured by all because He is supreme over all. Jesus deserves to be supremely treasured by all because He is supreme over all. The way we're going to approach this text is the way Paul approaches it. He tells us how Jesus relates to different spheres. For example, in verse 15, he's going to talk about how Jesus relates to God the Father. Later on in verses 16 and 17 and verse 20, he's going to tell us how Jesus relates to creation. And in verses 18 and 19, he tells us how Jesus relates to the church. Now, in relationship to God, Jesus is the image of God and he is firstborn of all creation. We'll see that. In relationship to creation, he's going to tell us three things, that Jesus is the creator, Jesus is the sustainer, and Jesus is the reconciler. And we'll look at those verses. And later on, he tells us in relationship to the church, Jesus is the head of the church, and Jesus is the source of its life, where he is the beginning. Join me as I read, beginning in verse 13, and we'll go through verse 20. Paul writes, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let's begin first with Christ's relationship to God. Now it's safe to say that in the history of the church, all heresies that plague the church have dealt with two primary questions. Question number one is, who is Jesus Christ? And question number two is, how do you get saved? Now, both questions are absolutely central to Christianity. You cannot be saved unless you believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And you cannot be saved unless you place your faith fully and wholly on the work of Christ on the cross. Now, in this section, 
and following verses, Paul addresses both of these questions. He tells us who Jesus Christ is, and later on, as we'll see next Sunday, Paul tells us what Jesus Christ has done personally for believers and Colossae and for all of us. Now, Colossians 1.15 has been at the center of theological debate since the 3rd century. In fact, when you have Jehovah Witnesses come to your door, this is their go-to verse about who Jesus is. By the way, with this self-quarantine, even Jehovah Witnesses stayed home and they don't come to your door. I read last night that if you get an email with a subject that says, knock, knock, do not open it. It's a Jehovah Witness working from home. Now, not only Jehovah Witnesses, but Mormons likewise, they don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. They believe that Jesus is a created being. Now, even the cursory knowledge of church history should confirm to you and tell you that all of the heresies that are promoted by Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and the likes have been debunked for 1,600 years. This has been debated again and again. And those who claim that Jesus is a created being, they have been refuted and declared heretics by the church again and again. Arians in the 3rd and 4th century were declared heretics. And you can say that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are modern-day heretics. Now, if you look at verse 15 in your Bibles, most likely it begins a new sentence. But in fact, it does not. In fact, the sentence go all, goes all the way back to verse 11. Both verse 15 and verse 13, they start with the pronoun who. Who, referring to the Father in verse 13, and who, referring to Christ, back from verse 13, His beloved Son. Now from this we see that we cannot just take this section and pull it out of its context and just preach on the glories of Christ. It is connected to the previous verse. He says that the Father has taken you and brought you into the kingdom of His Son. And He did so by reconciling you. He did so by forgiving of forgiveness of sins. In verse 14 it says, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You have been brought near by the Father into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And then He goes on to describe who this beloved Son is. So the first question He tackles in this section, beginning in verse 15, is what is Jesus' relationship to the Father? Now Paul describes His relationship to the Father in two ways. He says He is the image of God. And He is the firstborn of all creation. Let's take Him one at a time. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now the word invisible here is obvious, obviously a reference to the Father. Writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul said this, describing the Father, he says, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen, or can see. God is spirit. He does not have physical parts. You can't see him. In John 1.18, John says that no one has seen God at any time. Now this is a clear statement that defines everything else we find in the Bible. No one has seen God the Father at any time because he says to Moses in Exodus 33.20, he says, no man can see me and live. At least on this side of eternity, no one has seen God the Father. But with that said, it does not mean that we do not know God the Father. The Father did reveal Himself, and He revealed Himself in at least three different ways. First of all, He revealed Himself in creation. 
writing to pagans who did not have access to scripture prior to their conversion. Paul writes here because that, in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. People are without excuse. General revelation is enough to tell us that there is God. But not only has He revealed Himself in general revelation, God specifically revealed Himself in Scripture. You read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, know who God is because God has disclosed Himself. And most specifically, God has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Same verse, John 1.18, where He says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father he has explained him. It is at this third aspect that Paul focuses specifically in this text when he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, the word image comes from the word which is familiar to us from which we get the English word icon. We know that we as men have been made in the image of God. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our according to our likeness. We know that after the fall, the image of God has been marred in man. But even after the fall, man retained the image of God. In Genesis chapter 9, when God commands capital punishment, He says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, He made man. By looking at humans, you can know something about God because we are created in the image of God. But notice what our text says. Our text says that Jesus is not just in the image of God. Our text does not say that He became the image of God. Our text does not say that He was created in the image of God. Our text says that He is the image of God. The same word is used in Matthew 22, verse 19, where Jesus is talking to religious leaders when they were trying to trap Him. And He says, show me the coin used for poll tax. And they brought Him a denarius. And He said to them, whose likeness, image, and description is, inscription is this. In Revelation chapter th uh, 13, verse 15, we read, And it was given to him, to Antichrist, to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now see the image here, or even in the verses, the way it's used, when he says here the image of the invisible God, it signifies the exact as well as visible representation of God the Father. It is an exact as well as visible because God the Father is invisible. And that's why John is able to say that you could not see God. No one has seen God at any time. But Jesus Christ put on human flesh and He has come in order to make Himself known. That's why speaking to Philip, when Philip said to Jesus on that last night, He said, show us the Father. Remember what Jesus said? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You look at me and you will see the Father. In relationship to God, we can say based on this that Jesus is God. We read Hebrews chapter 1. That's why the author of Hebrews can say, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. You see, as by nature, Jesus has the same essence of the Father. He has the same nature as the Father. He has all the same attributes of the Father. Yes, He restrained from exercise of those attributes while He was here on earth. But as a person, 
as an essence. He has the same essence of the Father. So whatever the Father is, Paul says here that that is what Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is fully God. And not only is he the image of God, he says he is the firstborn of all creation. Now this word firstborn has been the cause of stumbling for many people. Now even in the Bible it is true that the, the word firstborn has shades of meaning. For example, it could refer to chronological order of birth. For example, in Jesus' case, in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, Luke writes, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now we know that Jesus had at least four brothers, and he had at least two sisters. But as far as the order of birth, Jesus was the firstborn. It, it is used like that in the Bible. However, the most prominent use of this word and the primary meaning of the word firstborn refers to preeminence, to position, and to rank. For example, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Where he thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now there were plenty of people before Israel came on the scene. And yet God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, he is my firstborn. In Psalm 89, where there's description of coming Messiah, listen to this verse, Psalm 89, verse 27. I also shall make him my firstborn. I shall make him my firstborn. And then he explains what that means. The highest of the kings of the earth. My firstborn refers to his high position and authority. And that is precisely the sense in which Paul uses this word here. Now notice that the verse nowhere says that Jesus became a creature. The verse does not say that Jesus was the first creature created by the Father, as some would have you believe. We know that as God-man, because He has the same essence and because He has the same nature, He always existed. But Jesus did add to Himself human nature and became like one of us as God-man. Jesus is the preeminent one over all creation. When there was temptation in Colossae or when the heretics were telling people that they need to worship angels, they need to worship something else, Paul says, listen, Jesus Christ is supreme above all. Why should we treasure Jesus supremely? Well, first of all, because He's God over all. He is supreme God who reigns over all things. Consider, secondly, Christ's relationship to creation. 15, that Jesus Christ is preeminent one above all creation. And then in verses 16 and 17, he describes his relationship to creation. And he does so in three different ways. He says Jesus is the creator, Jesus is the sustainer, and finally in verse 20, he says Jesus is the reconciler. Let's look at them one at a time. First of all, Jesus is the creator of all things. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, first of all, notice the prepositions that are used in this text. He begins at the beginning of the verse, he says, for by him. At the end of the verse, he says, for through him. And then finally, he says, and for him. Creation originates with Jesus and creation culminates with Jesus. He is the source, He is the means, and He is the end of creation. 
Now observe how comprehensive this text is. Look at this phrase that appears again and again. All things. You will see that at least five times, four times in these two verses, and then, four, and then one more time in verse 20, he says, all things, all things, all things. Now in case we have a hard time understanding what all things mean, Paul defines it for us. And he says that all things really does include all things. He says all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on earth. First, he says all things extends to every locality. No matter where you are, you have been created by Christ. When he says things in heaven, he includes things like stars, planets, space, and everything that is beyond this world. When he says that there are things on earth, he refers everything that exists here on planet earth. Now, while false teachers were saying that matter was evil and it was created by some evil emanation of an angel, Paul says, no, let me tell you, matter is not evil. It is created by God. And who, the one who created it is Jesus Christ. And this Jesus Christ is God himself. Now, notice he further separates all things into things that are visible and things that are invisible. Now, again, visible things obviously refers to things that Physical things, things that we could perceive with our eyes, perceive with our senses. And then he says the things that are invisible obviously refers to things that we cannot see with our physical senses. It refers to things that are beyond this physical world. And then Paul lists some of the components of the invisible world. He says here, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, although there is debate as to exactly what he means here, most likely this is a reference to rank of angels and demons. We know this because if you just turn your page and go to chapter 2, verse 10, he again makes another reference in chapter 2, verse 10 of Colossians. He says, in him you have been made complete, and he is the head, and notice he says here, over all rule and authority. And then he further def defines that, if you skip down to verse 15, he says, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, this is what happened, when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Through Jesus' death, Christ has defeated Satan. The Father has defeated the forces of darkness through the death of Jesus Christ. Paul makes another reference in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, these are created beings, but they're immaterial. They are invisible to our eyes. And Paul says in this text that Jesus is the one who created them all. You remember their desire to worship angels? Paul says, let me remind you, Jesus is the one who created all of the angels, the good angels and the bad angels. Now, when Paul says here that all things were made through him, he also makes an important point. As you read through the Bible, you will see that God the Father is the initiator of all divine activities. Anything that God starts to do, whether that has to do with creation, whether that has to do with salvation, it starts with the Father. But the Father does so through the Son and through the Spirit. In Genesis chapter 1, the Father speaks, God said. But we know from John 1 that Jesus is the Word. God spoke, 
and he created all things through the Son. So it is true to say that, G- that all things were created through Jesus Christ by the Father. And it is true to say that Jesus Christ is the one who created all things because no matter what God does, all three persons are active in that. And not only was creation made through Jesus Christ, Paul adds at the end of the verse, the creation made for Jesus Christ. He is the culmination of all things that were created. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, He sent the Holy Spirit. And from that time, we'll see a little bit later on, that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting for Father to subject all things to Him. Creation exists for Jesus Christ. Paul's argument in this verse is this. Jesus is supreme over all creation because He is the Creator. But not only is he the creator, and number two, he says Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Paul was not deist. Paul believed, he did not believe that God was a divine clockmaker who just wound up the universe and he let it go on its own. No, no, no. He says God the Father created all things through Jesus Christ, and it is Jesus Christ who sustains all things. Look at verse 17. He says he is before all things. And in Him, in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. Christ is preeminent because there was no time where Jesus did not exist. He was before all things. Why? God was always there. Before creation came into being, He was always there. He's both preeminent in rank and He is preeminent in time. That's why, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that it is Jesus who upholds all things by the Word. Of his power. Just think about this for a moment. The same Jesus you believe in, the same Jesus who created you, holds every molecule in his hand. There are no rogue viruses, there are no tornadoes or tsunamis or anything else that can happen apart from his sovereign will. Jesus Christ holds entire creation, as the passage says, in his hand. He holds all things laws of nature continue to operate because jesus governs the universe by his power you can rest in that you can rest secure that nothing catches him by surprise because the same jesus is in control of all things so jesus is the creator jesus is the sustainer number three jesus is the reconciler of all things We'll come back to verses 18 and 19 in a minute, but I want you to skip down to verse 20. In verse 20 it says, And through Him, that is through Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself, to the Father, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now this is the hardest verse to interpret in the book of Colossians and one of the hardest verses in the Bible. Now, one of the guiding principles that we use when we're studying Scripture, trying to understand what the authors meant by what they said, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. So if we arrive at a conclusion that contradicts other passages of Scripture, we know that our conclusion is wrong. So as we look at the text, let's first of all look at the things that are clear. Now, in verse 20, it says here that through Jesus Christ, the Father reconciled all things to himself and the question for us is this what does it mean that the father reconciled all things to himself through jesus christ 
Well, some come along and say, well, obviously this text teaches universalism. Universalism means that at the end of time, when everything's said and done, everything and everyone will be saved. Because the text says here, all things are reconciled to God. Now, we know that this cannot be true, obviously cannot be true. Because the same Jesus said that on the last day when people are raised from the dead, in Matthew 25, 46, he says, these will go to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There will be people at the end of the age who will go into eternal punishment. And not everyone is going to be saved. So universalism is not started. Someone else comes along and says, well, this verse teaches or refers to potential atonement. That Jesus Christ went to the cross and he has bought redemption for all men, for all creatures. And it is only those who will believe in Christ that get to partake and get to receive the gift that God offers to them. The only problem that that's not in the text. The problem with this is that there is nothing potential in this verse. This verse says that Jesus actually has accomplished something. That Jesus actually did something. Now let's look at the things that are clear. In verse 20 he says, And through him to reconcile, reconcile what? All things. So we have to ask the question, what does all things mean? Someone else might come along and say, well, all things doesn't really mean all things. All things means only the things that can be reconciled. And... Um, yeah, theologically you can say that that's true. But in this verse, this is the fifth time he's using all things. Either he all of a sudden changed the definition of all things because he told us what all things mean. He said that all things refers to the things that are physical, material, spiritual. It is everything that has been created. It is good angels, bad angel, fallen man, redeemed man, things that you can see with your eyes, things that you can't see with your eyes. All things include all things. So then the question for us is, so what does this mean? I said that what it cannot mean, but what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus can reconcile all things to the Father? And here it is in one sentence, and then I'll explain. This text here, Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, teaches that because of Jesus' death on the cross, the Father reconciles all things to Himself in two ways, either through salvation of sinners, or through condemnation. And I'll show you that. Verse 20 says here that the Father through Him reconciled. Reconciled means to have peace. We know that because of the fall, we know that as a result of what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, there is separation between God and man. There is hostility between fallen angels and God. And there is hostility between fallen man and God. Now, even in our verse later on, next week, we'll see in verse 21, he says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, there is hostility. There is no peace between God and His creation. Now, at the end of the day, what Paul was saying, that all things will be subjected to Christ. All things. Everything. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. To help us with this. 1 Corinthians 15, it's a helpful passage because Paul explains further on what he means by all things. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll begin reading in verse 23. 23, when Paul talks about the resurrection, and he says in verse 23, But each in his order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. So Christ rose from the dead as a promise that those who believe in him will be raised from the dead. And then he says, then comes the end. 
This is how the world ends. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When Jesus Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Now notice the parallels here. Everything is going to be subject to Christ. Look at verse 25. And he, that is Jesus, must reign until he, the Father, has put all his enemies under his feet. The Father will subject all of Jesus' enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, to be under someone's feet is a demonstration of sovereign rule. You remember, even as you read through the Old Testament, Joshua, for example, he captures the king. They all lay on the ground and he puts his feet on their necks, demonstrating that he rules over them. Now, this verse says that all things, all things will be put in subjection under Jesus' feet. Now, the Father right now draws people to himself and people willingly bow their knee before God. But a day is coming when everyone else who does not want to do so willingly will do so not because they want to, but because they have to. Because he says here that all things will be subjected to him. Look at verse 27. For he, the Father, has put, notice how many times all things mentioned here, all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. For when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection, on, in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, that is Jesus, then Jesus himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all and all. Everything in creation, all of the created beings, they will all be subject to Christ one way or another. A day is coming when hostility will be done away with. When there is going to be perfect peace and it is going to happen either by you humbly submitting to Christ and willingly bowing your knee before Him or as the enemies will be laid on the ground and they will be laid under Jesus' feet. And notice that all of this has happened as a result of Jesus' work because our text in Colossians 1.20 says that He having made peace through what? Through the blood of His cross. Jesus is in this position of sovereign ruler and sovereign king to whom everything submits is because of his death on the cross. You remember the famous passage, Philippians chapter 2. For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything will be subject to him. There is going to be perfect peace. Now for believers, it is different. And we'll see that next time. The reconciliation that he accomplishes for believers is the forgiveness of their sins and bringing them into their family. But notice, all this was accomplished through the blood of his cross. Jesus had physical body and physical blood that was shed on the cross. And therefore, Jesus died as a man. So why should Jesus be supremely treasured by all? Well, because He is the creator, He is the sustainer, and He is the reconciler of all. We saw His relationship to the Father. We saw His relationship to creation. And let's finally look at His relationship to the church. Look at verse 18. He's also the head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. 
Notice that in relationship to the church, Jesus Christ relates in two different ways. He says Jesus Christ is the head and he is the beginning. First, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now this metaphor of the body is prominent everywhere in the New Testament. The Father, according to this passage, has set Jesus Christ as the head over the body. He adds further in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. He says he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things. All things. Now, as the head, Jesus has sovereign authority over the church. This is his church. Also, as the head, he causes the growth of the body. He produces that growth. Ephesians 4, 15, 16. It says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You see, body can survive without a hand, you can survive without a leg, but you can't survive without the head. And here he says, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus made a promise. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It is His church, and He's the one who's building it. He is sovereign over the church. Not elders, not deacons, not church members. It is Jesus Christ who's sovereign over the church. And the way He governs the church is through His written word. Our faithfulness to the head is determined by our faithfulness to the word. Because that is how Jesus governs the church. And not only is the head, notice He also says He is the beginning of the church. He says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the originating cause. Jesus is the source of life for the church. See, if there was no Christ, there would be no church. Jesus says, I will build my church. Future event from the time when he was speaking. The church did not exist prior to Pentecost. It was only after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father when He sent His Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the church was born. The Spirit has come. And notice that in this, He says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. When it says that He is the firstborn, again, the emphasis is on His preeminence. Firstborn. Jesus was not the first person that was raised from the dead. Now, you could argue that he was because others were perhaps resuscitated because all of them died again. But in this case, when it says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, we're talking about his preeminence. It is his preeminence because even when all of us will be raised from the dead, Jesus is still going to be the firstborn from the dead. He is still going to be the preeminent one. And Paul explicitly says that in verse 18. Why? Why is he the firstborn? so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And just like everywhere else, by everything, he means everything. And when he further explains that he will have first place in everything, it is because of who he is, because he's God. Again, he refers back to the same thing he spoke of in verse 15. In verse 19, he says again, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. It is because of who he is, he has the preeminence in the church. One commentator put it like this, The basic reason why Christ is the Lord of creation 
and has become Lord of the church is that God in all his fullness was pleased to dwell in him and to rec- and pleased to dwell in him and to reconcile the universe through him. Now this theme of fullness will be further described in the book, and we'll come back to these passages. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for example. He says, For it is in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in the bodily form, and through him and in him you have been made complete. Because he is the head over all rule and authority. Why should you treasure Christ supremely? Well, because Christ is supreme over all. We begin with this text to say and ask the question, why is this here? It is here to give us the better picture of Christ. It is here to give us better understanding of who he is. And Paul, with this passage, wants to say to you, specifically to your heart, is that Jesus deserves to be treasured by all. Jesus deserves to be treasured by you because He's supreme over all. He's supreme over every sphere. Are you worried? Are you anxious? Are you panicking? Well, with this passage, Paul reminds you that there is one who loves you, who saved you, who redeemed you, and He is holding you in His hand. No virus, nor disease, nor sickness has the last word. Jesus does. But if you have not yet submitted to Christ, and if He's not Lord of your life, it is as you read this passage, you could believe in Christ. You can repent of your sins and you can trust in Him. He's Lord over all. And one way or another, you will submit to Him. So believe Him. Trust Him. Submit to Him. And treasure Him above all. Because He is supreme over all let's pray our father we thank you for christ we thank you for who he is and what he has done and that we can rest secure in him in christ's name amen